Um, so I got this method when I was in, in, in Indonesia. Some of you might know that I went to Indonesia at the beginning of August for a Young Leaders Conference. So I'm still considered young, which is great. It was a thousand young evangelical leaders from around the world. And every time we came to the scriptures, we'd go through this process. <clears throat> and I want to share with you some of the stories I heard. So um, I had the privilege of hearing this woman speak when I was in Indonesia. And I want to share with you her testimony. <clears throat> so Venetia Timothy, um, like many of us, was working, studying at university, um, studying a master's in social work. So on the outside, she looks pretty normal, but on the inside, she was screaming. Again, that might be like some of us. And she was filled with this anger. She was angry at her parents, her parents were missionaries, and so she resented the commitment that they had given to that, and she was angry at God. And in college, her nickname was Cece, cool and calculated. When people looked at her, they would describe her as being kind of cold, hard, a bit ruthless. And sometimes she would make kind of reckless decisions because when you kind of hate everything, including yourself, you don't, you don't really care. So she'd make decisions and she'd end up hurting others and then in the end hurting herself. And she reached a low point in her life and she ended up at the university's chapel. And she was crying and she cried out to God, what should I do? And the preacher got up to speak speak God's word, and the preacher spoke from Isaiah 42. And through the preacher, Phoenicia heard God speak to her, calling her to go and do justice among the nations. Two weeks later, she was diagnosed with a brain tumour. It was choking her nerves, she lost 60% of her muscle strength, she lost her voice. And she went into surgery and she lost hearing in her right ear. She wasn't able to even swallow food for a while. She wasn't sure if she'd get any of that back. And even then, she was still looking for opportunities to try and work out what does it mean to do justice because she felt this strong call from God. And after two years of silence, God gave her a voice. It wasn't the voice she had. It was um, a feeble, croaking voice. And she's telling us this story still speaking in this feeble, croaking voice. And it was actually quite painful to listen, but also really moving as well. Through that voice, she has proclaimed her testimony to the nations. And she says the most remarkable thing is, isn't that she's got a voice back in any capacity, but that Jesus transformed her. All that anger that she had, gone. And she says, he turned my heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And she has gone on to do justice among the nations. She works with International Justice Mission, and she has pioneered operations that have seen 4,000 people set free from slavery. She works with people who have come out of either forced labor or have been sexual slaves, and she works on trying to provide a space to rehabilitate and bring healing into their lives. This is her testimony, and it begins with a voice. God speaking through the voice of a person changed her life and gave her a sense of direction about where she should go, how she encountered Jesus. In the first century, there were a lot of people in Israel who would have felt voiceless. They were living under foreign rule, they didn't get to call the shots, the Roman Empire did. And there were a lot of people who would have felt 
angry. There was this anger bubbling away underneath the society because things were changing rapidly. Uh, the Romans were even influencing their language. So more and more people were beginning to speak Greek and less could speak Hebrew, which was what their scriptures were written in. So there was this anger bubbling away and it would come up with these bursts of violence. So people would go out into the wilderness and they'd try and start a rebellion against Rome. So they'd be like, let's fight for freedom. And some people would join them and then the Romans, who were very efficient, would come in and put the rebellion down and they would die. Other people reacted by trying to escape into the wilderness and they tried to form these little pure communities. They thought, what's wrong is our society, it's corrupt, it's so evil, so we just need to get away, separate ourselves, live out in the wilderness, and if we're just pure enough, maybe God will finally speak and act. Now they're both kind of extreme examples. Probably most people were somewhere in the middle, you know, kind of like muddling along in life, wanting to hear from God, wanting Yahweh to fulfill his promises, but not actually hearing much from God. And I was thinking there's a lot of parallels to our world today, because I think there's a lot of people in our world who feel voiceless, and there's a lot of anger kind of bubbling away in our world, our nationalism is on the rise, there's wars and terrorism, and in the middle of all those extremes is most of us probably muddling along, I'm not sure if we believe in God or not, or not sure what God is saying. John's Gospel declares that in this time, when everything's a little bit of a muddle, someone begins to speak, and this person speaks with such clarity, it's like the murkiness begins to clear away. In the wilderness by the Jordan River, a man by the name of John, which is different to the writer of the Gospel, calls on the people to come and repent, and be baptised. Now, that's kind of a controversial thing to say because the people who would get baptized were non-Jews. So Gentiles, if you were attracted to um, the Jewish God and you wanted to worship him, the way that you do that, or one of the ways, is that you be baptized publicly as a way of uh, making a symbol that you belong to this people. But John is saying, well, okay, this is not just for non-Jews. All of you need to be baptized because all of you have have drifted away, turned away from God, and you actually need to turn back. That's what repent means, turn back and demonstrate that through baptism. Now, that's a pretty provocative statement to say, like, let's if I said, you're all really not saved yet, you need to do something. Like, you might get offended. You're like, what are you talking about? I'm saved, I'm right with God. So, it's a pretty provocative thing to say, but obviously it resonated with people because people were flocking to the Jordan River saying, yeah, I, I do need to repent. I do want to be baptized. Show me how. And those in power, as those in power often do when they're not controlling things, are a little bit concerned by what's happening by the Jordan River. And so they send a delegation of priests and Levites to investigate and work out who is this person, who is this voice by the Jordan River. And this is what happens. John 1 verse 20. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. There's all these competing voices out there in our world, but if God exists, 
then what he says matters. Like, if God is real, then we want to listen really carefully to what God is saying. Now, in the first century, the question wasn't, is God real or not? Most Jewish people would have said, yes, of course. But their question was, how do we know what God is saying? And they tried to look everywhere. You know, I don't know if you've ever had this experience when you feel like God has been silent for a while, so you're kind of looking for signs. You listen to the words spilling out of people's mouths, and you try to discern, like, is God speaking through them? And that's what was happening in the first century, except there was this anticipation growing probably from God's spirit at work, but there's this anticipation growing that God was about to act. So these people who are going into the wilderness calling on Israel to rebel would often, um, as a way of encouraging people to join them, say, I'm the Messiah, because if you said that, that you're the Messiah, that would make more people flock to you. So some people were impatient. They're like, I don't know what God's doing. I'm going to take things into my own hands. I'm going to pretend to be the Messiah. And again, they were quickly killed. So Messiah had reached fever pitch by the first century. Like everyone was looking, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? There was all these rumors and speculation. And you, it's not surprising that a lot of people assumed John the Baptist. Like he's doing some pretty crazy things down by the river and people are responding. Maybe he's the Messiah. And so they come and they're like, are you, are you the Messiah? Or, or some other significant figure that we've been waiting for. And John kind of like pours water over the idea. He's like, no, not the Messiah, not Elijah, not the prophet. So who is this voice? Now the poor priests and Levites who are there, they're probably like perplexed, a little bit frustrated with John, because what sort of report is this going to be if they go back to their superiors and like, oh, he's, he's not the Messiah? Like that's not very, I don't know, insightful. So they press him further. Then who are you? And finally, John says, I am the voice calling in the wilderness. And he picks up a piece of scripture, Isaiah 40, and claims it for himself. Now, the people would have been really familiar with Isaiah 40. Uh, if you know it, it's a beautiful, grace-filled chapter. But Isaiah, before you get to Isaiah 40, there's, Isaiah talks a lot about judgment. I know like a lot of people love Isaiah you know, uh, as Christians, but we tend to just love, like, the nice bits, and we skip over the judgment. But there's a lot of judgment in Isaiah. Because in Isaiah's time, there was this reoccurring problem, the same problem that John the Baptist had, that people kept drifting, or that's a very nice word, maybe like deliberately turning away from God and worshipping other gods and forsaking God's ways. And Isaiah, as a lot of the prophets, kept calling people to come back, and, they, and he said, if you don't repent, if you don't turn back, then judgment is going to come. And eventually it got to the point when like, so much rebellion kind of accumulated that Isaiah said, I think like, it's almost too late. Like You can't repent. Judgment's going to come. You're going to be cast out of your land. You're going to go into exile. So there's some pretty heavy words in Isaiah. And then you reach Isaiah 40. It's like, <sighs> grace, like soothing words. Because God goes on to say, but the exile will end. You won't always live under foreign rule. And one of the signs of that would be this voice calling in the wilderness, preparing the way for the glory of Yahweh to be revealed. John says, I am that voice. I am that person. And then he says, you know, for those of you who feel like you have loud, powerful voices, you priests, to those of you who feel like you have no voice, someone who's coming, and none of us are worthy to untie 
his sandals. It begins with a voice. A herald speaks on behalf of God and prepares people for the work God is doing. And we need to be prepared because our ears get naturally blocked and it becomes hard to hear God. We need to be prepared because sometimes we don't actually want to hear from God. We prefer ignorance rather than having a relationship with our Creator. And so God, knowing this, does all that He can to kind of prepare the way. So from Isaiah, down the centuries, all the way to John the Baptist, it's just laying foundation work. Like, God is doing all God can to prepare for when the glory of God comes. God wants us to have a relationship, but He knows that it takes some work for us to get to that point. You know, the image of a road, that's the image that's used in Isaiah 40, it's this image of this road being prepared in the wilderness. It's often an image that apologists use as well. So if you, if you don't know God, you might want to picture yourself on a road and think about, like, if God was also on the road, where would you be in relation to God? Like, are you close to God or is, like, God in the distance? Now, if you, if you do believe in God, think about the people you know who don't know God. And think about them. Where would they be on the road? Now, when you picture this road, it's not a smooth road. Picture it with, like, potholes and obstacles. So apologists would say uh, there's these obstacles and potholes that stop us from coming to know God. And one of the work um, that apologists have is trying to think what are common obstacles, what are common potholes, and what can we do to help prepare the way, smooth the path. So, um, when you, if you know anything about apologists, you might think about them. They tend to like debating, like they have big arguments, they like logical discussion. So they try, um, and where there's false ideas or distorting ideas about God, they want to refute that, hopefully with gentleness, sometimes not always with gentleness. Um, and where there is like completely wrong ideas, to be like, no, no, we don't believe that at all, that's not who God is, and then, then you give a reason for who God is. But smoothing the road doesn't necessarily mean having big debates with people. Smoothing the road and preparing the people to come to know God can be as simple as forming a relationship with someone who doesn't know God and loving them and listening to their stories, their hurts, their hopes and then looking for opportunities to speak words of love and grace into their lives. And as we do that, we're actually preparing the way for them to come to know God for themselves. That's the ultimate aim. Like, you can't make anyone come to know God. I can't make you come to know God. And that's between you and God. But something a herald can do is help prepare the way so it's a little bit easier for someone to come to know God. And that's what John the Baptist is doing. And I want you to think about, are there people that you can be preparing the way for? Can you use your voice to prepare the way for someone? And who comes to mind? We can only help prepare the way if we've encountered God for ourselves. Like, if you don't know God, it's going to be very hard to help somebody else come to know God. John the Baptist knew God, but he didn't know everything. So he, he knew God, and he was splashing around in the Jordan River baptizing, he was talking to priests, but then he has this defining moment that kind of clarifies and turns everything upside down. John 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water 
was that he might be revealed to Israel. John sees Jesus and realizes that this is what he's been preparing people for. Like he didn't know, and then he sees Jesus and he's like, this is the glory of Yahweh come. Now does he keep that knowledge in and be like, I'm not going to tell anyone else. No, he shouts it out. He shouts it out to the people at the river and he says, this is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. Now, if you haven't been in Christian circles for a while, you might be like, Lamb of God, that's, that's a really weird phrase. Like, is Jesus a piece of meat that we're eating on our tables? What, what does John mean by that? If you have been in Christian circles, you might be like, oh, I know exactly what John means. It means you know, Jesus died for our sins on the cross. I'm going to suggest that that's not what John meant. Um, of course, he's probably speaking a bit prophetically here, but John and nobody knew what Jesus was about to do on the cross. Like We all know that in hindsight. So what John probably means was uh, lamb was quite a common symbol or metaphor used to mean deliverer or saviour. Um, it appears in a lot of Jewish writings at the time, so Messiah. But what John probably expected, and what most people expected, was that when the Messiah came, the first job of the Messiah was to get rid of sin and evil, right? And obviously that wouldn't be me, but it'd be like all of you. So get rid of all the sinners, and often through quite violent means. But that's why they often went out and declared war, because the Romans obviously needed to go. They were a problem. So there's lots of violent imagery, and that's probably what John was imagining. And to give you an example of this imagery, I have one Enoch, which is not in your Bibles, in case... Like I've never heard that book before. Um, so one Enoch says, Sinners shall be judged for their sins and driven from the face of the earth. He shall crush the teeth of the sinners, or from our Bibles, Isaiah 11 verse 4. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Now the surprising twist is, which most of you probably already know, is that Jesus is the Messiah and he does deal with sin and evil, but not in the way anyone expected. He takes God's judgment on himself and he suffers a violent death so that we might be forgiven. Nobody knew that at the time. And John the Baptist, unfortunately, will never actually witness that. But what John does grasp is that this is the Messiah. And what is a herald? A herald announces that the king has come. Now, I don't know if you were thinking in your Bible reading, but when I was reading it, I had this question. Why does God need John to announce this news? Like, surely God could do this himself. And then everyone would know, like, this is my Messiah. Um, in the other Gospels, God does actually speak. There's a voice from heaven, and he doesn't say it's Messiah. He says, this is my beloved son. But in John's Gospel, God's silent. Um, why doesn't Jesus speak? Like Jesus could have said, I am the Messiah and uh, I am the Lamb. But yes, I'm the sacrificial Lamb though and I'm going to die for your sins on a cross in about three years' time. Jesus doesn't say it. Why does God allow John to speak? I think this actually gets into one of the mysteries of God, that God really wants a relationship with us. Like, it's remarkable that God would want a relationship with us. And so God's preferred method of communication is actually to work through people. And I think it's because it's a way of God coming down onto a level that we can understand. Like the people we can most understand, hopefully, is one another. And so God chooses to work through people. 
people's voices, this is human words. And I think that's what we're reminded of when we look at John, that God is at work through John's normal human voice. I'm actually told this in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. A herald was a messenger sent by the king. John is a messenger sent by God who is called to be a witness. Now, if you know Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, then you too, I don't know if you know this, but you too are called to be heralds. Again and again, God gives the responsibility to announce the news of Jesus to us, to ordinary people like us. You have a voice. And you can choose to use it. And you can think, oh, I, can't, I can't be like John the Baptist, like he was very full-on, or I don't want to speak in front of lots of people. That's okay. Like, I was not asking you to, but God is calling us to use our voice wherever we are, in the conversations that we are. And you think, well, I'm not an expert. I, I don't know it all. I haven't um, studied enough. If you know Jesus, speak about Jesus. John didn't know it all. I don't think anybody knows everything about God. But God calls us to speak about what we do know. And so when in doubt, focus on Jesus. That's what the early church did. The early church was full of excitement. And it wasn't just one or two people speaking about Jesus. It was everybody. Because they had the gospel. And the gospel means good news. And so they wanted to share this with everybody. That's why the church grew. Because everybody was speaking about Jesus. Why did they speak? 1 John 1 verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. They spoke because they wanted more people to come into this fellowship, into this community that was springing up. They wanted more people to share in the excitement of knowing God. They wanted people to come to know God for themselves. Somewhere along the line, we've lost our passion. I don't know if it's because we're scared. I don't know what holds us back. But we tend to like shut our mouths and not speak. And I was challenged by this when I was in Indonesia because I heard another woman's testimony. I can't tell you her name for security reasons, but she came to have faith in Jesus and she felt called by God to go back to her home country, which was Iran. Now, Iran is one of the most dangerous places in the world to speak about Jesus. So she didn't like get up and have a big conference and talk about it. It was in conversation with people. And people started to respond. They wanted to know more. And at the same time, she began to hear of her colleagues and friends being arrested. And so it was tempting, like, should I leave? Is it not safe for me to stay? But she felt like she should stay. She kept talking about Jesus. But eventually she too was arrested, and she spent 30 days in solitary confinement in a prison. And what got her through that time was speaking out loud into that silence all the verses of scripture that she could remember. That's a challenge for us, because I'm not sure how many verses of scripture we could remember, but she just kept speaking out aloud all of God's words and holding on to them. The most powerful thing she said was she said, I'm not special. Because that's what we think, oh, you must be a special Christian doing that. She says, I'm not special. I am completely ordinary. But when God calls you to speak, you speak. And trust that God will be with you and all the rest of that stuff. You know, John the Baptist, he spoke. It didn't end well for him, really. Like, he ended up in prison. He got beheaded. 
And he kept speaking. It's like the words burst forth because he had beheld the glory of God and he wanted to renounce that and share that with whoever would listen. So if you know Jesus, if you have beheld the glory of God, will you use your voice to announce who Jesus is? And who comes to mind? Who can you announce it to? We need people to speak. Because we live in a world where there are a lot of voices. Some of them shouting really loudly, God is dead, or God is angry, or God is hateful, or we don't need God. There's a lot of voices shouting that. And I'm not saying that Christians should be out there shouting. I think we need like a different approach, a kind of cultural approach. But we need to be a voice that says, I believe. I believe, and this is why. And all it means is doing is talking about what have you seen and heard? What is your testimony? Can you talk about what you have seen and heard? Because that's what John does. All John is doing is giving his testimony. This is what I saw. And he says it again, John 1 verse 32. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me sent me to baptize his water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. I love John's testimony because it's really honest. He's like, I'm not even sure who I was looking for. Typical God. You know, God only gives us like cryptic clues. So he's like, I'm not even sure. Like he probably knew Jesus. Like I think they were cousins. That he knew Jesus, but he didn't know that Jesus was God's chosen one. Until the Spirit alighted on him. So John's been waiting, baptizing people in the desert, waiting for the sign, and the Spirit comes and confirms. And John's like, wow, okay, this is God's chosen person. Confirmation is so important. In the first century, it was so important because, as I said, there's a lot of people claiming to be Messiah. How do you know who the true Messiah is? In our world, we have so many voices telling us all different ways to get to know God, all different ways to the good life. How do you work out what is the right way? This is where confirmation has a role, because if it had only been Jesus, if Jesus had been walking around saying, I am the Messiah, the chosen one, or even worse, if he had said, like, I am God, 100% God, if people do that today, what do we think? (coughs) They're crazy, crazy, delusional, need to go into an institution. Jesus, this is a good reason to say that he wasn't crazy, because he doesn't do that. He's actually much more subtle. Jesus hardly ever gives himself any titles. But he proclaims his message, he heals people, and he allows this buzz to circulate around him. He allows other people to work it out for themselves. Everywhere Jesus went, there was this buzz, that this is someone important, that actually this could be the Messiah. I think we need confirmation and we need different voices because there are some voices you are going to trust and other voices you won't trust. There are some people you respect, but there are other people you don't respect. I think God tries to have all these different voices create this buzz around Jesus so that we reach different people. Like, there are some people you will reach that I will never be able to reach, that they would never listen to me. Or people who speak different languages, like literally, like we could not communicate. I can't share the gospel with them unless I learn the language. So there's different people that we can reach, and there's different people that will respect you, and they're not going to respect um, me. And God knows that. So God calls all these different voices to speak. And that's why every voice is so 
important because we are all confirming who Jesus is. And there's this buzz going across the centuries and across the world that keeps saying, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Third person I heard in Indonesia, Tracy Trinita. She uses her voice. She speaks to university students and high school students. She was one of the first supermodels to come out of Indonesia. She worked with like Naomi Campbell on the catwalks in New York. And she went into modeling, as often you do at quite a young age, at 14, um, because she wanted to find happiness. She says, I thought that if I had more money, I'd be happier. So I pursued modeling for happiness, leaving my friends and family behind to travel to New York. But she didn't find happiness. Instead, she found a lot of partying, drugs, and a, and a deep sense of emptiness. So then she's like, where else do I look? Where else is happiness? And she noticed that people of faith often seem to be happier, but she wasn't sure which faith because she came from a family which had a Muslim, a Protestant, and a Catholic in it. So she's like, who, who do I believe? And she ended up praying to God, God, reveal yourself to me. And soon after that, a friend of her invited her to a church service in Paris. She says, God bridged the heart and the mind and truly comforted my heart. I sensed the love like nothing I'd ever felt before. If Jesus was not real, then how could I have felt so amazingly loved? I know fake happiness. That is what the world of modeling relies on. And this happiness was true. It was out of my power, and God changed me. She committed her life to Jesus in 2002, and now she's a herald. She's going around sharing her testimony just like John the Baptist. If you don't know God, can I encourage you to listen to these voices and maybe you might get a glimpse of God. At the very least, they're all pointing the same way. You need to listen to Jesus' voice. So read the Gospels, listen, and see what happens when you encounter Jesus. If you do know Jesus, then the challenge is for us to use our voices. We are called to prepare the way for people to come to know Jesus. We are called to announce it. We are called to be able to share our testimony and to not be afraid of using the voice that God has given us. What is your testimony when it comes to Jesus? Do you know it? Can you tell it? We are messengers with good news. We should want to share that. And as we do so, and even if people reject it, we are still testifying that there is a God. And as John's Gospel says, the light of the world has come into this world. And we want to celebrate that. As children of God, we want to testify to that. But I know a lot of us struggle with this, so as a way of responding to God now, I want to actually give us an opportunity to practice writing at least your testimony down. And then if anyone is bold enough and I Know that we tend to be quite shy in the evening service. This should be a safe space. Like if anywhere is a safe space when it comes to talking about God, it should be the church for you to share. Now, I have a few things if you're like, how do I do that? Um, keep it simple. So John the Baptist, you want to be short, like John the Baptist's testimony, and think through who are the people who have the